With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 3. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Crystal Healy, about heartless hunters, desperate demands, exuberant extremities, and deep water denizens. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Desperate times call for desperate measures. In our first story from Christo Healy, something out in the woods has been causing trouble for a small village, and three men set out to take care of the problem. Uh, the thing is, how far are they willing to go to trap the quarry? Without further ado, I present to you The Hunt. 
We've been out here all day. I don't understand how we haven't so much as seen the beast. Williams head from his seat on a fallen tree. Birds cawed from somewhere off in the distance, but otherwise it was silent out in the woods. He sipped the ale in his canvas flask and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. How does a wolf that large hide? It hides because it's a demon. Dennis answered as he sat across from William cleaning his rifle affectionately. It doesn't belong to this world. That monster lives in the darkness. It's a creature that belongs to the devil. Beside him, a third man, Peter, was sharpening his knife on a stone. It's no demon, Dennis. It's a wolf like any other. And its pelt will hang on my wall. Mark my words. A wolf the size of a man is not like any other. Dennis snarled. That thing killed my brother. No ordinary wolf could have taken Philip apart like it did. I've seen him take wolves down with his bare hands. That thing tossed him around like a child's doll. It ripped him to pieces, Peter. Only a monster could do such a thing. He took a hand off of his rifle to grasp the cross, hanging around his neck. That's why we're here, William said. This isn't sport. Wolf or demon, that thing made this personal. We'll find it, Dennis. Don't worry. We'll find it and we'll kill it. God is with us. We've been hunting wolves for years. We'll win. Dennis stared down at the fire crackling between them, as tendrils of flame whipped about like the limbs of a living thing. I don't know that I believe that, he said. I think God left us when that thing arrived. Nothing like that could live in God's world. The Lord has abandoned us. Have faith, brother, Peter said. Evil exists in God's world, but it doesn't prevail. They stopped speaking and craned their necks simultaneously, listening intently as a howl sounded in the distance. It was a sound they were well accustomed to, but it was louder, deeper, bigger. This is it. Peter gripped his knife and stood, narrow eyes staring through the mass of never-ending trees. Dennis hurried to load his rifle, fumbling about. William set his flask down on the log beside him, grabbed his own rifle, and got to his feet, pushing around into the chamber. Do you think that was him? he asked quietly. Peter shook his head. There are many wolves in these woods. How do you know? It sounded big, real big, but I just don't know. How could we be sure? Dennis just stood poised, listening, his own ears, perked like a fox. He knew all about the hunt. All these men did. Wolf pelts made good coin. Tense moments ticked by in silence. Then there was a human scream a long, drawn-out scream of obvious terror. It was followed by a short cry of pain and a resounding silence. It came from the same direction, Dennis said. The beast is attacking someone again. We have to put it down. He was off and running through the trees before the others could even respond to his statement. Leaves crunched under his foot, and he clutched the rifle in his hand prepared for battle. Be careful, Peter said running behind him in a hurry to catch up. This thing is clever. Wits are almost as dangerous as claws out here. William took up the rear. You think it could be a trap? 
he asked nervously, looking back over his shoulder as he went. Is it trying to trick us somehow, lure us to its den? No, I just don't want to lose it, Dennis said angrily. I'm not letting this thing get away again. I wanted to pay for what it did to Philip. I needed to. It will, Peter told him. Over there, he said, pointing. Dennis didn't slow down. William came to a complete stop. He took his knee and aimed his rifle. There was a man they didn't recognize laying face down in the dirt, blood leaking from his torso. Dennis reached the man and grabbed him by the hair, lifting his head from the dirt. The man looked up at him, his face scrunched in pain and speckled with earth, his eyes full of wild fear. He lives, Dennis called back to the others. Where is it? He asked the man. Where's the wolf? Tell me before it gets away. Which direction did it go? Quickly. The stranger rolled over with a groan to show his shirt torn in four thick lines. Dennis could see that his chest underneath didn't fare any better than the cloth it adorned. The wounds would scar, but they were shallow enough to keep him from bleeding out. A glancing blow of Dennis had gas. Philip had been left in pieces, and it hadn't taken the monster long to render them that way. In his mind, Dennis saw the scene again, the horror of it, the violence. The woods had been painted red just outside their village. Dennis saw Philip's unseeing eyes first, as his severed head stared back at him from the post on the wooden fence that surrounded his home. Then he noticed the monster, still tugging at the meat of his brother with its enormous jaws. It stood to its full height and towered over him when he was no small man. Then, with a howl to pierce the night, it was off and running. Dennis swore his vengeance, gathered the others, and did what they did so well, go on the hunt. This man that lay before him now was lucky, to say the least. If the demon had caught him with the full extent of its talons, on the true power of its muscled limbs, the man would have died for sure. Dennis's trained eyes scanned the trees around the fallen man, but he saw and heard nothing. A low growl emitted from his throat that made William wonder, who indeed was the animal here? It heard you and left, the stranger said with a cough, his fingers going to the still bleeding cuts in his chest and belly. It would have killed me. Just another minute, and I would have been food for that thing. You saved my life. Thank you. I didn't see which direction. Dennis nodded to him. Of course, he didn't see what direction. He was face down in the dirt. This man had no fight in him, not that having fight did any good for Philip. Dennis signaled uh, William to stay with the man, and then he waved Peter to him. The two of them moved in different directions, searching the trees for any sign of the creature or its tracks. After a thorough search, they returned, carrying nothing but their weapons and their frustration. There weren't even tracks, Peter said. How can that be possible? What manner of beast leaves no paw prints in the dirt, especially when it carries around that much weight? It makes no sense. I told you it's a demon, Dennis said. William said nothing. He was too busy doing his best not to show the fear that was quaking his bones. He wiped at his neck wet with the perspiration of stress. 
His eyes danced around like the fluttering mosquitoes that increasingly harassed them. He wished he was back home with his wife, asleep in his bed, but was not that really any safer. Was anywhere safe with this monster out here? Philip had just been outside his own fence when he was killed. As frightened as he was, William knew that they had a duty to their families. This thing had to be brought down. With another howl, Dennis said, Let's go. They took the stranger back to their camp. Peter had salves in his pack that he treated the man's wounds with. The newcomer hissed and grimaced as it was applied. Tell us your story, Dennis said, scoffing at him. You're not from our village. Where do you hail from? The man nodded, his face contorted with pain. He eased himself upright against the tree. Ah, it's true, he said. My name is Trevor. I'm from the next village over, Castlewood. The beast killed my family, right there in our yard. I took the coward's path and ran. Dennis huffed and spat in the grass. It followed me. I ran, and it kept on my tail. I tried so hard to get away, but how could I outrun such a thing? It caught up to me where you found me. I screamed in fear, and the wolf slashed me across the chest with its giant paw. Then you were there, and it was gone, gone like my beloved family. The three men looked at each other thoughtfully. If it followed you from Castlewood, Peter said, then where are the tracks? Trevor just raised his arms and shook his head. It seemed he had no logical answer for the lack of prints either. You lost someone too, he said to Dennis. I can tell there's pain in you. My brother, Dennis answered, and he was no coward. Trevor hung his head in shame but offered no argument. Your family, he said. How many? Peter asked from his place beside the man. My wife and daughter, Trevor told him. I didn't have a gun when it came and I didn't trust myself to kill it with a stone from the earth. I wanted to make sure I lived so I could regroup and avenge my family. Dying with them, they would see no justice. I ran away. I know you see me as wretched, but now I can join you and be part of taking the monster down. I can send the murderer to hell before I join my family in heaven. Most men would want to rejoin their wife and child immediately. William said then, If Sarah were taken from me, I would not want to go on without her. I would have begged the monster to tear my throat free and send me on. I would follow Lucy to the grave too, Peter said, and the boys. They're the air in my lungs. Trevor looked away from them. I don't want to live without him either, but I do want to live long enough to deliver the devil his dog. I'm sorry if you can't understand my purpose. I don't need you to respect me, just to help me. Help me... Uh, find justice for them. Dennis answered with a nod. He understood more than he would have liked to admit. He didn't run off blindly into the woods after the monster that had slain his dear brother. He went and got the others and proper provisions and weapons. Calculated did not equal cowardice. First, you must rest. Allow the salve to heal your wounds, he said with surprising empathy. Peter, you have first watch. If you see or hear anything, you wake us. Don't go after this thing alone, you hear me? We fight together. Peter met his eyes. Is that because you care about me or because 
You care about your own vengeance and don't want me to steal the thunder of your kill? Just wake us. Dennis answered with snake-like bitterness. William felt like he was too afraid to sleep, but somehow he still managed. They all did until Trevor woke them, screaming, Get up! We must go now! Get up! What is it? Dennis snarled, sitting up and grabbing his knife. He went forward into a roll, then bounded to his feet, eyes peeled, and brandishing the blade in his hand. It took Peter! I saw it! Trevor said, his voice trembling with fear that made Dennis question his most recent assessment of the man's bravery. It snatched him right off his seat while he was watching for it. My bladder was calling me to duty, and it happened right as I opened my eyes. The wolf came from the shadows between the trees and seized him. Peter dropped his gun. It hit him over the head and then carried him off into the trees. Trevor was pointing the way. Peter's rifle sat on the ground, and Dennis judged that it seemed to be where it would have fallen if the man's story rang with truth. He looked over Trevor with disgust. It seems Bladder didn't wait for the interruption to be over. Trevor looked down his pants with embarrassment, his cheeks flushing pink. I was frightened, he said. Well, now you have a gun, Dennis told him, clamping a hand on the man's shoulder. Be sure to use it. Let's go. William was trembling, but he followed them into the trees. His head buzzed, all the thoughts of everything bad that could happen tumbling over in his mind. His eyes danced like the traveling performers that would visit the village during the warm months of summer. Ultimately, they found their way to the ground, where there was a trail of blood he could only assume belonged to his friend. It was easy to follow, almost too easy. He voiced his concern to the others. It leaves no tracks but it leaves a trail of blood. I don't like it. Dennis didn't respond. He knew the other man was right, but it wasn't going to stop him, so there was nothing to be said about it. He didn't care if it was a trap. A trap meant he would get to face the beast that killed his brother. That was all he cared about. How much do you think we can fetch for a pelt that big, he said snidely. Then they found Peter. He'd been gored and thrown up into a tree where he hung limply over a branch, his lifeless eyes staring at them, his empty open ribcage grabbing the branch like a bony hand. Dennis screamed in fury. He was quaking with hatred, and his entire body gave way to adrenaline-fueled convulsions. William and Trevor pointed their guns at the trees and turned in circles. "'You saw it?' William asked. "'You saw it, take Peter? You saw it with your own eyes?' Trevor nodded, swallowing a lump in his throat, his eyes nervously scanning the surrounding trees. I opened my eyes and I watched it seize him. It happened so fast. In a moment, it was dragging him away before I could even call for you. I wasn't sure that what I was seeing was real and that I wasn't dreaming at first. As soon as I sat up and saw that I was truly awake, I yelled for you both. I'm sorry. I should have acted faster. If I was quicker, maybe I could have saved my family, too. Warned them. I wish I were better. We don't have time for that kind of thinking. I have more important worries, William said. Dennis was still snarling like a beast himself and sniffing at the air, glaring into the darkness, his trembling fingers, constantly readjusting on the hilt of his blade. Why did it just take Peter? 
Why didn't it just kill us all? William asked. That's what I want to know. I care not for your slow reactions or soiled pants. It's too smart for that, Dennis answered, with a quiet knowing that packed as much force as his anger-driven screams. It knew it wouldn't have time to do that before we awakened. It didn't want to get caught. It's going to pick us apart if it can. It's doing to our hunting party what it did to my brother's body, ripping and tearing it apart one piece at a time. You almost sound like you respect that demon, Trevor said. <laughs> was all Dennis said, and he punctuated it with a shrug. Maybe we should go back. William said to them both, We can regroup, come back with more men, ten or twenty even. That would make it harder for the beast to dwindle our ranks. It would give us more opportunities to catch the thing, too. You can go if you want to, save for you, Dennis said, gesturing toward Trevor. I'm not leaving these woods until either the wolf is dead or I am. You're right, calculated is good. Do the smart thing. I won't stop you, but I'm not leaving. I can't. I've nothing left to go back to, Trevor said. I want to see this through. I'd rather face the beast and die than do this another day. William frowned. So what's the next move, then? The wolf is nocturnal, I believe. We wait till daylight. It has to sleep at some point. We've just to find where it goes. With a beast that large, it shouldn't be that hard to find. Dennis stormed past them, back through the trees. What about Peter? William said from behind them. Peter's gone, Dennis said, without looking back as he marched off towards camp. When they made it back to their fire and belongings, William said, I definitely cannot go back to sleep. I don't even think I can sit in one place. The thing's still out there somewhere. It could be watching us right now, waiting for its chance to grab another of us. God grant us mercy. Good that you can't sleep, Dennis told him. Then you're taking next watch, because the fire of my hatred is sapping my energy. I need to rest in order to make sure I have what it takes when the fight is upon us, come morn. He laid down and closed his eyes, hands still clutching the knife's thick handle. William looked frightened. He wiped sweat from his forehead and bit his lip, his eyes roaming the shadows for any sign of the monster. Trevor's story was still fresh in his mind. That thing grabbed Peter before he could even react, leaving his gun. What good would being on watch even do? Quietly, his lips moved in barely audible prayer. He looked toward Trevor, who was lying down as well. He'd seemed just as frightened. How could he just sleep? How was it so easy for both of them, knowing that a killer was out there in the trees stalking them? How was it so easy to sleep after finding Peter mutilated the way they had? Peter was their friend. They'd been hunting with him and sharing holidays with his family for years. It was the brother of Philip's wife, for God's sake. Widow, he reluctantly corrected himself, and his worry deepened. The wolf was somewhere in the dark, watching. He could feel it. William searched for the sparkle of animal eyes, but he saw nothing. He just felt it. He didn't know if it was nerves or truth, but he felt inclined to trust his gut. After what happened to Philip and now Peter... William didn't know if he would ever sleep again. He asked God to watch over his wife and keep her safe in his absence.
William decided that sitting was far too vulnerable and nerve-wracking for him to handle this night. Peter was sitting right where he now sat when the wolf took him. It was enough to drive him mad, so he got to his feet. William was pacing nervously, clutching his rifle in his sweaty hands. He prayed quietly that the wolf wouldn't come back, that God would take care of their problem for them. He begged for it. He would have taken Dennis up on the offer to leave, but he didn't want to go back by himself. He was too frightened. He didn't believe the monster would have allowed him to make it to the village with his head. His plan was all but useless if he was killed on the way. It would just be one less gun to help Dennis slay the demon. William looked in every direction and walked around the camp as the others slept. He was really on edge. He would jump at nothing. Owls hooted in the dark and his gun flew in their direction. Things skittered and scurried through the woods all the time, and it had him antsy. He jumped and spun and pointed his gun over and over, but nothing ever came. Dennis was right. The wolf was smart. If it saw him patrolling and trigger-happy at that, it would never be foolish enough to show itself. Maybe that was good, though. Maybe it would help keep him alive. Then his eyes went wide as something reached around from behind him. Thick nails tore into his throat and opened it wider than his eyes. A geyser of crimson spewed forth from him, and his fingers fumbled to catch it as if he could return the blood to his body. He collapsed to his knees, sinking into the dirt turned to mud by his own fluid. As his life drained from him, he was seized from behind and dragged toward the trees. "'You,' Dennis said. Trevor dropped William's body and stared at the hunter. Dennis was already clutching his knife. He'd been ready and waiting on this moment. He made sure to change, to not leave paw prints for us to follow. But did you think a real tracker wouldn't notice the human prints? I'm nobody's fool. You knew I would take William, Trevor said, his clawed arm returning to human form. You sacrificed him in order to catch me in the act. You care so little even for other humans, yet you claim to be here for vengeance. How could you be so cruel? To defeat clever, you must be clever, Dennis said. This is about the hunt. It's about victory. We will see who the superior hunter really is. Now prepare to die, demon. Dennis dove for Trevor, knife raised above him. While he was in mid-air, Trevor changed. His entire body bulged and warped, changed shape and size. Bones cracked and hair grew. His nose and mouth pulled from his face and became a muzzle of razor teeth flanked by whiskers. It only took a moment. Just like that, Trevor went from human to man-sized wolf. Dennis's blade punched through the shoulder of the giant beast that stood erect on its hind legs. The enormous creature howled in pain, but grabbed the hunter with a huge paw and flung him across the camp. Dennis's back hit a tree and he fell into the still-hot remnants of the fire. Dennis rolled away with his shirt smoking, and he flipped to his feet, growling like he was a beast, a human animal. The wolf was on all fours then, snarling, saliva dripping from its immense jaws. 
The hunter grabbed a nearby rifle now that his blade was lost, as it remained stuck in the wolf's thick hide. He dropped to one knee and fired as the wolf charged straight for him. The thing didn't even stop. The bang echoed through the trees, scattering the creatures of the night. Dennis was sure that he'd hit it, but the monster was still coming. It truly was a demon. His eyes fell upon his knife that was still embedded in the charging beast's shoulder. When it reached him and sank its giant teeth into his midsection, he cried out in agony but grabbed the hilt of the blade. Dennis could feel his organs being punctured. He knew that he was bleeding internally as well as externally. He knew in his heart that he wasn't going to make it home to his family. He wasn't going to be able to tell Philip's wife and child that the creature was dead. He wouldn't be able to show them the skin to let them feel safe again. Dennis didn't want to perish without taking the wolf with him. He couldn't leave this thing in the world to destroy more families. He couldn't admit that this demonic beast was the better hunter. An eye for an eye, he snarled. Dennis endured the pain that was trying to make him black out. He ripped the blade free of the beast's shoulder and plunged it into the creature's chest, knowing well right where its heart was. It yelped, sounding more like a real wolf than a demon, and Dennis found that satisfying. The monster had been reduced to a simple animal. It released him, falling onto its side where it laid, taking shallow breaths as it waited for death. Dennis looked down at his own body. His entire torso was full of puncture wounds. He was already soaked with his own blood. It was painting the grass and dirt beneath him. It seems like we are both going to die today, demon, he said. I suppose we're even. The wolf turned back into Trevor, who remained on his side, clutching the knife in his chest. He coughed and blood sprayed from his mouth. We are now. As for death, that's fine by me, he said. I didn't lie to you. You are the beast that killed my wife and child, you and your brother. You shot them right in front of me, and then I watched from the shadows as you skinned them by the fire. I watched you drag them away, nothing more than pelts and meat to you, and I swore my vengeance. Now I have it, and I can go in peace and join them. Tell your brother hello when you get to hell. Dennis said nothing, partly because he was in shock, but mostly because there was nothing left to say. He and this creature were one and the same from beginning to end. His eyes fell closed, then Trevor's shallow breath ceased, and the woods grew still. I hope you enjoyed the hunt by author Christo Healy, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale, and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Healy. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-E-A-L-Y a prolific purveyor of short horror, you can find him in numerous anthologies, far too many to list here. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Christo a kind word and let him know you heard about him on this show 
and that Otis Gyrie sent you. It would mean a lot to me and to Christo. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Small philosophical question for you. If someone is attacked in the woods and no one is around to see it, is the person a hideous monster waiting to get you? Survey says, most likely. In a time and place removed from our own, Christo Healy takes us, in his second tale of the evening, on one man's quest to see his love one more time. But be careful with whom you negotiate. They might just give you exactly what you need. Without further ado, I present to you not what you bargained for. Wendell pulled at the vines, damp with dew, that were in his way. He'd been trudging through the trees since sundown. The air held a dampness and a chill, but he still sweated with the exertion of making this journey. It was not something he ever expected to find himself doing, but fate had led him here. Wendell was too old for this kind of trek, and his body wouldn't let him forget it his bones creaking like an old door, and his muscles burning in protest. He knew it was a little crazy, but he also knew that he had to do it. It was a final act of love. Wendell was doing this for Elsie. There was nothing he wouldn't do for Elsie. After 30 years of marriage, she still mattered more than anything else in the world. Their children had already grown, left, and married someone on their own, just like it was when they met. It was just the two of them, alone in their little cottage, passing the days away together until she got sick. Watching the love of his life fade from the world was the hardest thing Wendell ever had to do. But as much as each passing day felt like an enormous fist punching away at his heart, he wouldn't have given up a single moment of it. Since the first day he'd looked into Elsie's eyes, every moment with her was one that had been cherished, even the hard ones. Now Wendell was here, trying not to trip over roots and rocks as he trudged past vines and branches to navigate the wilderness of what Elsie believed was an enchanted forest. There were people here that he needed to find, he didn't know where they were or how he would find them in the dense underbrush packed with vegetation. He was kind of just hoping he would know somehow. The whole trip was a long shot and more than a little bit crazy, but so was love, wasn't it? Wendell hadn't believed in the people of the forest, but Elsie had sworn by them and their magic. If there was any hope, any inkling of a chance that she was correct then they could be what he needed to save her. Wendell had to try. For her, he had to try. He would have taken any journey if it meant saving her. The hardest part of the whole thing was being away from her while she faded away. He was missing precious moments with her while he was searching these overgrown woods for the magical people she told so many heartfelt stories of. Elsie held them in high regard and claimed to have seen them herself, even holding one as a child. 
He was missing time with her to be here, but the look on her face when he told her where he was going was worth it. She was so happy, so proud, even as sick as she was, and that was why he could never give up, never turn back. The healer had already said he had expended his resources. There was nothing in modern science that was going to fix her and remove the illness that had invaded her body. He said it was time for Wendell to just keep her comfortable until the lost ones came to claim her and take her to the other side. That was all that was left for his darling Elsie. Wendell wasn't ready to accept such as an outcome so easily. He couldn't even bear the thought of a life without her. It took the air from his tired old lungs. Wendell couldn't even remember life before Elsie, and he tested it by thinking back. It was like his life started when he met her, like he himself didn't exist before their love did. How was he supposed to go on afterward? He was already an old man. In his mind, as he pushed his bent back through the wild greenery, Wendell recalled Elsie's sickly pallor as she smiled through it and told him tales of the magical people of the forest. It brought back light into her eyes after the sickness had made it dwindle down to almost nothing. If Elsie was so certain that the people of the forest were real, then, as her husband, Wendell owed it to her to find them. Maybe it was a fool's errand or a wild goose chase, but if it brought one more smile to her precious face, then he'd do it a hundred times over. Elsie had been talking about the people of the forest the entire time he'd known her. He tried to remember all the things she had said over the years, the stories she had told him when she returned from picking apples or washing clothes down at the river. In his mind, he was searching her stories, old and new, for clues to the whereabouts of these magical people she spent her life putting so much stock in, so much faith. Wendell tried to recall the details of the forest and where she said she went to find the little folk and their brethren. He was going on faith, taking her details as accurate, believing her every word about something wholly unbelievable, and he laughed at himself for it as he leaned against a tree to catch his breath, moist bark wetting his tunic. Regarding himself as a little bit ridiculous and possibly a tad bit mad, did nothing to deter him. It only made him think of Elsie when she was healthy and vibrant and the way she would always laugh at him and shake her head, saying, You're a silly old man, Mr. Holloway. And he would reply, If it makes you smile, I'm proud to be. To which she would say, See? As she shook her head and laughed at him again. Wendell always listened to her stories, even though he thought that maybe she had eaten... Eh, the wrong mushroom while she was out there. She always looked so happy talking about them, the little folk, and the people of the forest that they guarded, even if it was all in her imagination or regurgitating stories that her father had told her when she was a child. He could have listened to her all day when she was that happy. She had a glow to her when she spoke about them, like a little bit of their magic flowed through her. Tears came to his eyes as he thought about it. He choked back a sob and put his fist in his mouth. 
His heart was breaking inside of him, and he swore he could feel it like it was made of so much porcelain. Elsie had her own magic that hypnotized him immediately and seemed to infect everyone she met over the years they were together. She was so animated, alive. She was wonderful. Wendell ached to see her like that again. He would have done anything for it, even forfeited his own life, if it meant a few more moments with her feeling good. He felt like so much of him was dying with her anyway. Maybe he would see her healthy, see her happy, her contagious smile lighting up the world once more, if the people of the forest deemed it so. She certainly believed in what they could do. How could he not do the same? If anything else he had told him was true, then Wendell should be close to their domain now. He had to be. The darkness was growing in the star-thin sky, a sign of how long he'd already been out here already. He'd uh, be close to finding these people, and once he did, they would have the magical ability to fix everything, to make Elsie brand new. On the other hand, he could be wandering around those woods searching for something that didn't even exist. All he could do is hope, and so hope he did. Wendell's eyes widened with excitement when he spied something from Elsie's tales. His broken heart accelerated, and he quickened his pace as much as his old body would allow. The weight of the sack at his back seemed to push him through the ground. He was in pain, but he trudged on. The sack contained his offering, and soon it would be a weight lifted in order to lift one even greater. Wendell reached the star-shaped clearing Elsie had told him of. If nothing else, her directions seemed to be real. Up to this point, everything was just as she had told him it would be, as she recalled from her days of youthful vigor. Just ahead was the cave, she mentioned, like a dark, toothless mouth yawning. That was how she had told it, and it was a fitting description he now saw. He chuckled and thought to himself that he was glad it didn't come with teeth. Wendell caught his breath and let his old bones and muscles rest a moment. Then he headed straight for the dark opening in the rock. It was almost as if it called to him. He was so close now. Wendell didn't know what was happening to Elsie back home or how much time he had to succeed. He definitely knew that time was of the essence and he needed to make haste. Before he even had left... Elsie had gone past pale to this dull gray tone, like death had already taken her. She was so thin and frail that he could see her bones protruding more each day, like they were soon to burst through her flesh. She could barely even talk to him anymore. She struggled for air, and when she found it, she coughed, a cough that ended with blood in a kerchief. She still managed to smile, to light up, when he told her where he was going and why. Wendell hated leaving her alone, but if it was to save her, to heal her, it was worth it. But if she died before he could... He couldn't think about it. He had to just keep going. When he reached the entrance to the cave, Wendell ducked his balding head to fit through the opening of the forest's yawning mouth. Something fluttered by his head and he swatted it away. Mosquitoes had been harassing him since he first ventured into the trees. The forest came with bugs. They were everywhere, 
though he wasn't sure what kind lived within the darkness of a cave. None that he wanted to meet, he was sure. The more he went forward, the more the flittering things were buzzing all around him. It was maddening. Shoot, he said, go on. Upon closer inspection, he thought they were probably harmless. They looked less like bees or wasps and more like moths or butterflies. Their wings were huge and transparent, but scrawled with veiny lines like the underside of the leaves of a tree. It didn't make sense to see butterflies in a cave at night. But what about this journey made sense? At last, Wendell came out the other side and found everything else he had said he would find. There were flowers of every color. Nature's rainbow, she'd said. And they were blooming with wild abandon, stretching as far as the eyes could see. There was a magic to the scenery, the brilliant purples and golds that lit the scenery up like lanterns. He could swear the flowers actually glowed. Lights at its center past the brightly colored petals. The incredible garden surrounded a pond of clear sparkling water. The sun seemed to shine here even in the dark of night. He knew that it was an illusion brought on by the flowers, but it still felt to Wendell like he'd just wandered into heaven. Was this where Elsie was headed once she left him? If it was, she would be so happy. That much he knew. It was then, as he thought of this, that he noticed the bugs were not bugs at all. They were tiny winged people, the little folk that Elsie had told him about. They had every feature of a normal-sized person, arms, legs, hair, distinctly detailed faces, each one unique, and even genitals displayed on their tiny naked forms. Wendell stared back at them in shock now that he could see them clearly in the light. He couldn't believe it. They were real. If they were real, then the people of the forest were real too. The Fae, Elsie called them. Ha ha! They're real, Elsie, honey. They're real and I found them, darling. I found them for you, he said excitedly. Then he remembered that he reacted to them with fear and hostility in the darkness of the cave, and he felt suddenly ashamed, frowning for them to see. I'm sorry about swatting at you, he said, to the crowd of tiny fluttering people. I hope I didn't hurt any of you. I'm old and I don't see well. I would never intentionally bring harm to any of you. Wendell could see their little faces, and he knew that they were talking back, yelling even, it seemed. But they were so small that all he could hear was a high-pitched chirping sound, like a hungry bird beckoning him for food. Their contorted faces and narrow eyes told him that was not at all what they were trying to convey. I'm sorry, he said again. Wendell stepped to the edge of the pond, and a bridge of sparkling gold and diamonds suddenly appeared out of nowhere, curving over the water and leading into the center of the pond, where a small island stood waiting. Was he supposed to go there? Wendell nervously chewed on his finger as he looked at the bridge in awe. He'd obviously angered the little people, and he hadn't seen the fae yet. He didn't know if he was in any kind of danger. The bridge definitely hadn't been there a moment ago when he first arrived in this place, but it was there now, and Wendell didn't know if he could trust it, if he should. 
He wanted to trust, to believe, for Elsie. Was it something physical, though? It seemed impossible. If they were magic, could it not be an illusion meant to trick him into stepping into the water? Would they laugh and feel vindicated when he plunged past the surface? What lay under the surface of such a pond? There could be any manner of creature down there. Wendell swallowed the lump that rose in his throat as he thought about it. He touched the edge of the bridge with his toe. It seemed solid enough. I'm looking for the people of the forest, he said, the fae. Are they here? You? Are you here? Wendell frowned. He felt foolish, out of his element. To steal himself, he envisioned Elsie shaking her head and laughing at him. He nodded and took a deep breath, then his eyes fluttering around just like the little folk that buzzed about his head. Vines sprouted up from the island before him and wrapped around themselves, tying together in loops and knots until they formed what looked to Wendell like an enormous throne of grass. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. It was amazing and equally terrifying. Had Elsie ever made it this far, witnessed this? He wished he had a way to capture the moment and bring it back to show her. In his mind, he imagined the look of wonder that would blaze in her eyes upon bearing witness to such a spectacle. Hello? Is someone there? he said. The throne remained empty. Wendell waited anxiously for something to happen, but nothing did. Aside from the squeaking cries of the little folk, becoming more irate and agitated. He bit down on his knuckle. He didn't know what to do. Then Wendell remembered something else he had told him, something he had forgotten about. You needed to rub your eyes with marigold water in order to see the fay. He had let it slip his mind. Wendell had actually brought some with him in preparation for this moment. It was in a pouch on his hip. He removed the vial from the pouch and pulled the cork stopper free and dabbed some on his fingertips, wiping it on his eyes. He looked at the throne of vines and roots again, hoping to see something different, and he did. He still couldn't believe that magic was working and myths were real. All of this seemed like no more than a strange dream to him. Someone was there on the throne facing him. There was nothing a moment ago. But maybe there had been, and he was just blind to them without the marigold water. It looked like a man sitting on the throne of tangled vines. He was well built, tall as a tree and shirtless, his bronze flesh sparkling like the flowers that surrounded them. He had incredibly long white hair, parted down the middle, and it fell over his shoulders, draping over the firm musculature of his chest. Wendell remembered Elsie's description of the fay. She had remarked that they had skin the color of butterscotch. He smiled at the thought, realizing again that she had been right. The fae's male ears came to sharp points that reached skyward. He had to be one of them, one of the people of the forest that Elsie had talked about. What else could he be? He definitely looked like a person of power, of magic. Are, are you fae? Wendell asked. "'What have you come here for?' the man asked, in a voice that sounded to Wendell like music, each syllable plucked from a harp. Wendell was taken aback by the beauty of this creature. 
He had never seen a man that had struck him as beautiful before, but there was no other way to describe him. He had high cheekbones and full lips that made him look seductively feminine, like a beautiful woman. If he hadn't been shirtless, Wendell might have actually thought that he was a woman. Thinking about it, maybe he still was. Wendell didn't know how gender worked with these people. Maybe he was both a man and a woman, or neither. Unlike the little folk that were flying around them both, he wore pants, and Wendell wasn't about to inquire as to what was inside them. That felt incredibly impolite, rude even, especially as it was this being's business and had no bearing on why he was there. He was there for Elsie. That was what mattered. It's my Elsie, Wendell said, starting over the bridge toward the strange man in his throne. Don't come closer, the face said. My fairies are as dangerous as they are small. Don't underestimate them. Wendell stopped there on the bridge that he still wasn't confident wouldn't disappear and take him into the depths of the pond below. He looked nervously around at the little folk that still fluttered about. They were dangerous? He looked back at the fae, then... I... I don't. I won't. I just... I need your help. What did you bring to bargain with? Wendell swallowed the lump in his throat and nodded. Gold, he said, patting his back. I brought you all that I have. My Elsie is worth more than money. I have no need for money. The man nodded then and waved Wendell forward with a long, slender fingers. Wendell hurried across the bridge to the island and then knelt before the throne, his head bowed before this royal creature. My Elsie is home, sick. She's dying. She's the one that told me about you, about this place. She said you have magic, great, powerful magic. Please, I just want to see her healthy again. I want to be able to dance with her and talk to her like I used to. I want to see the color in her face again, the light in her eyes. Please, help me if you can. I beg of you. The fay nodded. He held his hand out. Wendell assumed it was for the gold. He reached to his back and untied the sack that had been pressing on him for so long. Bringing it around to his front, he immediately felt the difference of not having that weight on his tired old back. He handed the sack to the tall being on the throne, who nodded and took it. Then the fay waved a hand at Wendell, and he found himself moving back over the bridge. When his foot touched down on the grass again, the golden bridge disappeared as instantly as it had come. When Wendell looked up, the fay was gone, too. The throne suddenly empty once again. Then the roots untangled themselves and retracted back into the earth of the small island. It seemed like none of it had ever happened. That was it? Wendell asked, looking around. Is it done? Is Elsie okay? Did it work? The only response he got was the chittering of the little folk that fluttered around him. It seemed he got what he was going to get from this place. He just hoped it was enough. He wouldn't know until he got back home. All the gold he owned was gone. There was nothing else to try after this. All that there was left to do was hope. It had gotten him this far. Wendell made his way back to the way he had come. 
was easier to maneuver without the bag of gold on his back, but his old muscles were already sore and screaming at him from pushing them to get him there. He was exhausted, and it took him until the rise of the sun to make it back home. He stumbled up to the cottage and fell through the front door, collapsing to his hands and knees on the stained wood floor. He panted a moment to catch his breath and groaned against the pain of his screaming muscles and aching bones. "'Elsie,' he called. "'I'm so sorry that I was gone so long, my love. Are you all right?' "'I'm just tired, dear,' she called back. "'I'm glad you're home.' Wendell hadn't heard her voice so loudly and clearly in so long. His heart jumped at the sound, and he felt suddenly energized. He bounded to his feet and hurried to the bedroom where he found Elsie in bed, just as he had left her, except the color had returned to her cheeks, and she was looking at him with that gorgeous, contagious smile. He smiled back and saw the gleam in her eye when he did. She was as beautiful as ever. Wendell immediately started weeping. You're okay, he said to her through his tears. It worked. The Fay, I found them. They fixed you. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Oh, it's okay, sweetheart. Come over here, she said sweetly. Wendell went to her. He took her face in his hands and he kissed her. She kissed him back and they held each other. He trembled as he clutched her to him. You're so beautiful, he said. You always were. Elsie laughed. If you say so, she said, my silly old man. I do, he told her. I do say so. Then he climbed off the bed and extended his hand to her. Dance with me, he said, like we used to. Come on. Oh, I, I don't know, she said. I'm tired, Wendell. Elsie, please, one dance, that's all. She took his hand then. Wendell led her out of bed and onto the floor, and together they danced to the music of their hearts, swaying and spinning, dipping and kissing. Elsie had been right. She'd been right about everything. She was right about the forest. She was right about the little folk and the fay, and she was right about the magic. She was right about it all. Wendell truly didn't care about the money that it took to make this happen. He would trade all the money in the world for Elsie any day. There was nothing worth more, nothing at all. The next day, while Elsie bathed and sang, Wendell wrote and sent word to his two sons to let them know that their mother had miraculously recovered from her illness. He cooked for the two of them, and they took it outdoors for a picnic. Every moment felt like a celebration. He found himself singing, randomly, for no reason, a dance in his step, Seeing her healthy like this made Wendell feel younger as well. He was spryer now that she was back to her old self. He loved seeing her laugh at him for it, too. He loved every moment, all of this. He'd never been so thankful to anyone for anything in his entire life. The following day, Elsie asked him to run to the market. He said he couldn't because they were broke. He had spent literally all their money to return her health to her. He laughed about it, not feeling the least bit upset, that their life savings was now gone. Elsie inquired about their gold and his trip to the forest, and he recounted all of it for her. He delighted at how happy it made her, and he kissed her with a renewed passion they hadn't experienced in many years. 
That night they took a walk by the water together. They sat in the grass and looked at the stars, and they reminisced about old times, going back through their favorite moments of their many years together. They laughed and cried together and held each other close. Life was even better now than it was before she'd gotten sick. These were his favorite days of his life thus far, because he still remembered what it was like when she was sick, and he took none of this for granted. Each passing beat of their hearts resonated with him. On the fifth day since he had returned from the forest, Wendell and Elsie's son Peter arrived with his wife and daughter. Wendell ran out to greet them with incredible joy. He was so happy to see them, and for them to see Elsie alive and well. Peter hadn't seen his mother since she had first taken ill. They had been writing letters since in which Wendell had been hopeful but honest about Elsie's condition. But now she'd recovered. She was like brand new. Wendell hugged them all, welcoming them. Your mother's inside, he said to Peter. I told her you were coming. She can't wait to see you. Peter patted his father on the arm and went inside. He came back to the door as his wife and daughter were coming in, and he physically stopped them, barring the doorway with his arm and keeping them from being able to enter the house. He leaned by his wife's ear and whispered for to take their daughter back to the carriage. She looked at him with concern, and he just shook his head. Please, he said, take her and wait for me. When she did as she was asked, Peter stormed out of the house and grabbed hold of his father angrily. He stared into his eyes. Wendell had never seen his son so angry, and he couldn't imagine what had gotten into him. He returned the man's mother to him when she was all but gone. He should be happy, not like this. Is your brain addled? What's wrong with you? Peter demanded. Wendell looked at him with genuine confusion. He shook his head. I don't... I, I don't understand. Peter seized his father's arm and marched into the house, pulling the old man behind him. He dragged Wendell into the bedroom. Wendell's confusion only increased. Elsie was looking at them both with a smile in her eyes that matched her lips. She looked beautiful as ever. Wendell returned the gesture. What are you smiling at? Peter demanded to know. Father, we need to bury her. This is sick. It's a horrible thing to keep mother like this. It isn't normal. Can you not smell her? Is this some kind of foul attempted humor? What did you say? Wendell asked him, despair setting in like a kick to his heart. His hand shook at his sides. What are you saying? He's right, Elsie said. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I love you. Don't be upset with him. Wendell shook his head. Something was wrong. Maybe the magic was fading. Maybe they needed more gold. He ran past his son out of the house and into the woods. The fae could fix it. He would get them whatever they needed. Fantastic. I'll bury mother by myself, Peter yelled from behind him. Thank you for this joyous visit, father. Wendell ran and ran and couldn't stop until he reached the clearing and the cave and the magical land beyond. He knowingly swatted the fairies away this time. Move, please. I'm sorry, but I need to get through, please. Wendell was crying, but he wiped his eyes with marigold water anyway. Show yourself, he said. Please, just 
Tell me what I need to do. How do I save her? Please, I'm begging you. I paid you to save her, to fix her. I gave you everything. What else do you need? Tell me. I will get it for you. I don't know how, but I will. I will do whatever it takes. Just tell me, please. Wendell fell to his knees, racked by sobs, his old chest heaving, his nose running, and eyes watering. When he looked at the small island, the fae was sitting on the throne of vines once again. Wendell was so relieved to see this strange being. He reached a hand toward the island to plea for help. You need to bury your wife, the fae said to him in his usual sing-song way. But why? I thought you fixed her. She was healed. Tell me why, Wendell begged. What did I do wrong? Why have you forsaken me? You said you wanted to see her healthy and talk to her like you used to. I gave you exactly what you asked for. Wendell wanted to be angry. He wanted to scream that the strange man at the forest had tricked him. He wanted to curse him for his deception, but he couldn't. He couldn't because he realized just what a wonderful gift this magical being had given him. He had five of the most incredible days with Elsie that he ever had in his life. He remembered every single moment of those days, and he always would, for as long as he remained alive himself. He did cherish the fact that he had gotten to see her again, in all her beauty, to hear her voice without the coughing, the beautiful melody of it. It was a much better way to see her off, to remember her. Wendell was heartbroken that it was over, but it still had been a gift that he would cherish forever. He nodded in acceptance of the truth then. Wendell looked at the fay on his throne, tears streamed down his face, but he dried his eyes with his sleeve and his breathing became more regular, steady. He got to his feet and waved in a gesture of thanks before he turned his back on the fay and walked out. Thinking about the conversation he and Elsie had under the stars brought the tears back as Wendell walked that now familiar path through the woods on his way back home. He sniffled and wiped away tears as he thought about Elsie seeing him now. He imagined her shaking her head and saying, You're a silly old man, Mr. Holloway. I guess I am, he said as he walked. Wendell knew that he needed to apologize to his son for such a gruesome misunderstanding, and just the same, he needed to tell him about his mother and the people of the forest to share her many stories and to let Peter know that magic was in fact real. His tears returned as he remembered how it felt in that moment, when he had first gotten home and heard her voice, saw her healthy. As he stepped over the roots and rocks and pushed the foliage out of the way, Wendell recalled dancing with his wife in his arms, spinning and dipping as they had. Oh, how he loved her. He loved her with everything he had, which he supposed he had now proven. He could see her bright eyes and pink cheeks as she smiled at him from behind his tearful eyes. My sweet, beautiful Elsie. My sweet, beautiful, magical Elsie. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author 
can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Healy. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-E-A-L-Y. Be sure to check out his blog or the many anthologies he's contributed his rather prolific collection of stories to. As a reminder, if you do decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that me, Otis Charby, sent you. It means way more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Christo would much appreciate it. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and gain access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can also subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry Channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jivey Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. 
And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha 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 ha.